Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Newly elected Democrats in the House of Representatives are getting lots of press attention. Sean Kasten is one of them. He ousted Peter Roskam in Illinois' 6th Congressional District. It's the first time the district that covers the West and Northwest suburbs has elected a Democrat since 1972. Sean was a scientist and clean energy entrepreneur before getting into politics. Thanks for joining us, Sean Kasten. It's my pleasure to be here. What's it like to get sworn into a government that's shut down? Well, I suppose I uh, um, I wouldn't know any other way. Um, <laughs> it's uh, you know I, I I joked a little bit with Senator Durbin early on that I you know he said anything I can do to help you is prepare for getting sworn in, and I said yeah if you could slow down the news cycle so I could start with some early easy votes I'd appreciate it, and uh, apparently I didn't uh, that wasn't in the cards. What kind of things are you hearing from constituents about the shutdown? The piece that I found most frightening, I was recently talking to some air traffic controllers who work in the district. You know, these these people are heroes. They're sitting there, you know, not sure whether they're going to get paid, but obviously not going to stop working to make sure that our, our airlines are safe. And they're telling us that what they're really struggling with, in addition to the personal uncertainty, is that because this is a partial shutdown, there are programs that are shut down and others that aren't. So he was saying to me that the entity that does their government IDs is shut down, so they can't automatically scan to get in. You know, that sort of seems like an inconvenience. But then he starts explaining how the same idea is used for their lockout, tagout, safety procedures. That's really a problem, right? Because if something needs to be done urgently and now you've got to wait for someone to do paperwork that was designed to go quickly, people's lives are at risk. And when I said to him, how does this feel relative to prior shutdowns you've been through? He said, he said, we're way more nervous because in prior shutdowns, the resolution to the shutdown was purely based on Congress. And he said, as much as, you know, we may have political differences with Congress, the body acts in relatively understandable and predictable ways. And in this instance, he said, we're sitting there saying, resolving this shutdown largely depends on one person who has not demonstrated a propensity to act in predictable ways. And he said these people are carrying that stress home with them, but are also trying to do a pretty stressful job with that stress with them. And we got to get this government open quick. We shouldn't be exposing people to those kinds of risks. It seems like in other government shutdowns, horse trading something got the government open again. Uh, is there a face-saving horse trading measure that you see coming down the pike here? Because, um, it, you know, David Brooks the other day said swap uh, the wall for DACA, DACA kids. You know, you could you could get something really big if uh, Democrats gave on the wall. I had expected at the at the start of this that the efforts by the House to simply pass all of the bills that were identical to the ones that the Senate had passed by overwhelming majorities, you know, three weeks ago, that that would provide a way to provide some face saving, because what we have done is just said, we're just passing Republican bills at this point. We're not modifying. Well, apparently that didn't work. I think the conversations that are, I think, most interesting is if this is, in fact, a conversation about border security, and I question whether it is, but if it is in fact a conversation about border security, there are a lot of of border agents and others who are pointing out to anyone who's willing to listen that um, Mexico is a, a pretty modern country. Um, when people are going to smuggle contraband across the border, this is not in the middle of a desert, you know, in a spaghetti western. These are these are people with trucks and vehicles, and they bring it in through through our control points, but 
in order for them to make sure they have the resources they need, what they'd really like to have is 200 to 400 million of of enhanced scanning facilities um, at the checkpoints. That's not a wall. That's that's about having the checkpoints. My understanding is that that conversation has not really gotten anywhere. And you know, I I I, I don't want to speculate, but at least from this vantage point, it feels like the challenge negotiating is. Uh, I think the president is hung up on a wall for for personal reasons. Um, What we have said as a party is we will fund every program for, you know, you know, for the year and just temporarily fund Homeland Security. So if there's really a conversation to be had about security, we're going to have to get that resolved quickly. And my understanding is the president has dismissed that out of hand. I'm talking with Sean Caston. He ousted Peter Roskam in Illinois 6th Congressional District and is newly uh, sworn in at the House of Representatives. One of the interesting things that happened during your campaign was you ran on climate change and you ran hard on it. You put it at the top of your agenda. This is something not a lot of candidates have done, uh, especially in a district that has been Republican for many years. Do you think your campaign changed the script on candidates and climate change? I sure hope it did. As someone who has never run for elected office before, I have a hopefully not naive hope that when we ask our politicians to message on things that poll well, we are effectively asking our politicians not to lead because following the polls is not leading. Um, From my vantage point, um, climate change is the existential risk we face as a species. We have a very small amount of time to get it done. And if to not talk about it, I think is irresponsible. To talk about it and win, I hope creates a template um, for people thinking about running in future elections that this is in fact a strategy that you can use to win and you don't need to avoid. But you need to understand it. You need to talk about it with some expertise because um, this is not a you know I don't think we're better off just with sound bites. Let's get people who understand it. I'm I'm frankly encouraged not only that I won, but that I'm not the only person who campaigned on climate change. You, know, you had Mike Levin out in California, who um, who made a big deal about it. You had Andy Kim in New Jersey, who spoke very consistently about this being a national security threat. And what's what I think is nice is that people coming into the next cycle can now look and hopefully appreciate as I do that that. Climate crosses a lot of issues. You can talk about it as an energy issue. You can talk about it as a security issue. You can talk about it as an environmental issue. Um, you can meet people where they are, and 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 hopefully we'll see more of that. In the new Congress, there's a bunch of excitement around a Green New Deal. There's 40 representatives that have signed up to support it, but you, the climate change running guy, did not. Um, why not? Well, look, first off, I completely share the goals of the Green New Deal. We have got to lower CO2 as quickly as possible. And I'm delighted that there are so many people advocating for doing that. The issue I have with what's there and why I didn't sign on is not because I don't share the larger goals, but because because tactics matter. And having spent, you know, really 20 years of my life trying to deploy clean energy projects and having having some successes, having some failures. Um, I have struggled with so many laws that, that inadvertently penalize us for doing the right thing, but we're crafted with the best of intentions. 
And energy policy is really complicated. Environmental policy is really complicated. It needs to be to be done and managed in a way that it, that understands that complexity. And the nervousness I have with the Green New Deal is not the agenda, but that doing trying to execute that agenda in a very public profile with a lot of TV cameras on you and with with a lot of, of very passionate, very energetic people um, is, is tough because it's easy to mess it up. And so I basically just think that I think the agenda they are striving for is better achieved through the existing committee structure. Also, uh, you are not interested in sitting on the Select Committee on Climate Crisis that was created by Speaker Pelosi. Why not? Well, it's, it, it, it's really it's the same reason. This is a committee that is um, is not going to have the jurisdiction to make to make changes. Now, it can talk about big picture policy things. That's terrific. Um, maybe they'll come up with some great policy ideas, um, and maybe in 2020 we will have control of the Senate and the White House, and we could advance those policy ideas. But we can't afford to lose another two years not doing anything about climate. And that's, of course, not the goal of the select committee, but practically the there's a limited number of hours that I have in the day. And there are a whole lot of, of policies that could be advanced outside of that committee that would make a meaningful difference today. And, you know, I, I, I hope to have this job for a while. The only thing I know for certain is I have it for two years. And I want to be able to say at the end of those two years that I, that I played a role in passing meaningful policy that lowered the CO2 emissions rather than just put markers down for future Congresses to, to address. What kind of things are you talking about? Well, there's a lot. If I had my druthers of, if I get just one bill to pass, I would like to add a single sentence to the Clean Air Act. The, there's a provision in the Clean Air Act called the Major Modification Section of New Source Review, which, which says that once you have an air permit, if you make a modification to your facility that increases your output, your facility might be a steel mill, a power plant, you know, something that manufactures, if you increase the output of what you make, you have to um, revisit your air permit, which often means that you have to, you know, install addition pollution control device because air standards tend to tighten over time. That's a it's a good law. It's well intentioned. It keeps people from gaming the system, and it inadvertently criminalizes energy efficiency, because every manufacturer or power plant who wants to invest in something that makes them more efficient and increases their output without using any additional fuel refuses to do it because if they do, they will have to get hit with a, a whole lot of additional environmental compliance. And I, and I know this because I've, I've, I have lost projects that I couldn't take across the line because our hosts didn't want to bring them forward because they were afraid of triggering that provision. If we added a single sentence, you know, along the lines of nothing in the prior section shall apply unless you're increasing your fuel use, you would unleash no exaggeration, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars of capital investment. You would give opportunities for the entire industrial sector and utility sector of the country to make themselves more efficient and more competitive on the global stage. And the net impact on emissions would be zero. You'd reduce CO2 emissions, but all the other emissions would stay flat because you're not increasing your fuel use. Um, that's that's an example of the kind of thing I was talking about, where you have a very well-intentioned policy, the Clean Air Act, an inadvertent negative effect of that that has been in place for 40 years. 
And, you know, during the Obama administration, it seemed like they um, thought that changing the laws was impossible and they used regulations instead. I'm sure that uh, the Trump administration doesn't want to change the Clean Air Act, that the Republican Senate doesn't want to change the Clean Air Act. Well, I, you know, I, I think this is an and, not an or. Um, you know, I think that I think the challenge is that the, you know, look, let's let's be honest. We have we have one party that substantially denies that climate change is even a problem. Um, it is simply hard to see how, in this environment, the House could pass something that is billed as a climate bill and that it would be taken up in the Senate. Um, that's been different in past administrations and past eras. That's the reality we have right now. Um, the pres- president certainly doesn't understand it. So I, I, I think the for the next two years, there are a whole lot of things that we can do. The, the modification to the Clean Air Act I just described to you, that could be described solely as a way to enhance the competitiveness of U.S. businesses. You don't ever need to say the word climate. And there's a whole lot of industrials who would love to see that change. Um, the We could make other things, you know, other changes like, for example, we we provide differential tax treatment to various clean energy technologies that have equivalent environmental output, and it hugely distorts capital markets. We could modify that in the name of, of cleaning up the tax code. My point in all those is that those those bills that we could pass could be passed because they could be very reasonably and accurately argued as being done for reasons that have to do with economic efficiency um, or national security or better grid reliability. And among people who understand it, we would recognize that, oh, by the way, it's also going to have a huge climate impact. But I think if I think to lead with a with a climate bill in the current environment is highly unlikely to be picked up by a Mitch McConnell-led Congress um, or by a Donald Trump-led White House. I'm talking with Sean Caston from the 6th Congressional District. We're talking about some of the uh, ideas he has about climate change. Um, what about a carbon tax? Do you believe in a carbon tax? Um, I would love to see us put a price on carbon. I'm a free market guy at heart, and when you you get what you reward. And right now we do not economically reward carbon reduction and we should do that. As a policy matter, I think carbon taxes are flawed. And and the reason is because the the only thing that matters is that we reduce the CO2. And putting a price on carbon doesn't guarantee that the CO2 gets reduced um, because it, suppose you're a solar developer. Um, if you're going to try to attract capital to build your solar your solar plant, your investors are going to say to you, well, does this carbon tax give you more money? And the answer is no. It just raises my my competition's cost structure. Well, are they going to pass the cost along to consumers? I don't know. If they do, the implication is that it hasn't changed their ability to, to attract capital because their shareholders don't have to pay the price. If, in fact, they have to compress their margins, then um, then you've hurt the ability to raise capital for a coal plant, but you haven't raised the price of energy. And so there's this – I think there's a certain amount of economic laziness that assumes that a, that a stick is the same as a negative carrot. They're just different. Um, so – you know, as far as carbon regulatory structures, I think I think carrots are, carrots beat sticks, and and it, it at worst let's do both, which is essentially what a cap and trade does. So 
I absolutely want to put, see a price put on carbon. I absolutely want to make sure there's incentives to be rewarded for reducing carbon emissions. But I think a carbon tax as a policy tool is flawed. Do you think that the U.S. should increase research and development for things like carbon sequestration? There's no question that we need to do more R&D. However, what we need to recognize is that the barriers to reducing carbon are not fundamentally technological and they are not fundamentally economic. They are their policy. And there's a tendency to put a lot of money into R&D because we assume that markets are already optimal and we all sort of vaguely remember our freshman economics class. The the reality is, you know, you've got countries like Japan and Denmark that use half as much primary energy per dollar of GDP as we do. They have the same access to capital. They have the same standard of living. They have the same level of talent. And yet they have managed to run an economy that is, is half as carbon intensive as ours is. What are they doing differently? The, the difference is policy. And I speak from some personal experience on that because I've built over 80 clean energy plants and not a one of them used a new technology. Um, they were just making making businesses more efficient. So that's not to say that there's no role for R&D, but when you have so many policy barriers to the, to the deployment of existing technology, R&D simply puts more technologies on the back of a line that still is precluded from moving forward. So my own, my own personal priorities are to remove those policy barriers first and then, then deal with R&D once we breach the dam and all those, all those technologies that are held back and start pushing forward. How many people are you finding so far that think like you do about this? Because there seems to be um, so much energy about the things like the, the Green New Deal and like really going bold on this and creating a wartime effort and, uh, you know, an idea like 100 percent renewable energy in 10 years. That's, a, that's something people can kind of rally around. Do you think targets like that are a good idea? Well, look, the, the world needs prophets and the world needs kings, right? And it's important to know who you are. I think one of the one of the real beauties of this incoming freshman class is that there are a whole lot of members who have spent their careers prior to this point as as practitioners, not as not as theoreticians, um, not as policymakers, but actually as practitioners. Um, whether it's me in the clean energy space or. Alyssa Slotkin, who was a CIA analyst and was negotiating with ISIS, um, you know, I could go on and on down the list. Johanna Hayes, who was the Teacher of the Year in in Connecticut, those people bring a deep and fundamental understanding of how you actually get things done, as opposed to the theory of how policy might work to get things done. And I, do I meet a lot of people who have um, who are in politics who have 20 years of experience in the energy industry? No. And that's okay. Um, but I'm but I'm pretty excited to be a part of a class where there are so many people who are exceptional in their own ways and bring their own unique unique experiences and I I I hope and so far I'm encouraged that the the body politic here is pretty excited to see how many people are coming in with those experiences and and have their egos in check enough to say let's Let's make sure that people who have that expertise are, are out there where they can put it to work. 
Sean Caston represents Illinois' 6th Congressional District, and congratulations on your swearing in and, and getting into Congress, and good luck with climate change and with the government shutdown. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Coming up after the break, we'll stay on the Renewables Beat with the organization Faith in Place. They help faith communities convert to solar. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about renewable energy with Representative Sean Caston. Now let's talk with an organization that helps make solar happen for religious congregations. For 20 years, Faith in Place has helped congregations with sustainability. They're working with Chicago Area Peace Action and Go Green Will Met for a public event called Solar for Faith Communities. It is coming up Wednesday in Will Met. With me is Dan Huncha. He is Faith in Place Director for the North and West Suburbs. And Dan and I know each other. We go to the same congregation, which has solar panels on it. Great to see you, Dan. It's good to see you, too. Um, tell me about how many places have solar panels now, because I, I think, I thought like our congregation, I thought we were a little behind maybe, and there were not a lot of congregations. There were lots of congregations out there that had them already, but uh, really there's lots of room for congregations to get solar panels, I guess. Yeah, there definitely is. I actually did some research because I thought you might ask me that, um, that we know of, like we, um... We work with houses of worship to do solar, but then we also there's some groups that go solar that we don't directly work with, but we put them on our website to highlight the good work that they're doing as well. So there's about 20 houses of worship in Illinois that have solar panels that we know of. There could be more, but we're always like, tell us what you're doing so we can highlight your good work. So, you, so the event you're having on Wednesday is to round up more congregations to do this, and I imagine. Um, are all congregations, do they have things like green teams, uh, ideas that people who are um, forces in their congregation to want, that want to do something like this? Yeah. A lot of groups, they, um, House of Worship at least have social action committees and groups that focus on a wide range of uh, social justice issues. And then they usually also form green teams to focus specifically on environmental issues. And that's one of the things that we do, I think, that's most important, is that we help houses of worship form the green teams and give them tips and tricks and partner with them long term um, so they can be the most successful in reaching their goals. Um, we have a get in where you fit in motto where we don't tell them what to do, um, but we help them reach their goals and then also challenge them and encourage them to grow in different ways that have really high impact for their community. Now, I imagine solar panels is one of those high impact things. And when you talk to a congregation about uh, a big capital investment like that, they all, I better scared out of their wits. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot are concerned about the finances. And that's kind of like the big thing that people think about 
like right away, they're like, we're going to do something. We're going to do solar, you know, as their first project. And we partner with them and we're like, well, it might be better to start off on a smaller project. It might be good to start with energy efficiency, get your usage lower, and then go to solar. Um, We're real big on let's have some concrete wins that we can do that are short term so you can build momentum, celebrate your successes, and then grow into larger projects like solar. Um, But yeah, if you want, I can talk about different uh, exciting new uh, finance models that House of Worship are using because usually the direct purchase of 100% cost is a little bit daunting for most houses of worship. Yeah, I bet that is. So what kind of things do they do? Are there loans out there? How do they do it? Yeah, so there's a few different models. There's lease, there's lease to own, uh, there's power purchase agreements, which a lot of houses of worship are doing, um, which uh, a lot of the benefits that individuals can take advantage of to bring down the cost are through tax credits. But nonprofits like House of Worship can't take advantage of that. So they partner with an installer who is a for-profit company that actually owns the panels. And then the House of Worship purchases the power from them. Uh, So like just rough ballpark numbers, since we're friends, we can just, you know, do rough numbers. So for about a 25-kilowatt system, which is about 90 panels, which for a medium House of Worship might be about 40% coverage of their energy – um, it, that roughly costs around $80,000, um, which is kind of a big uh, bill for a house worship. So the power purchase agreement, there's a low payment up front of about $15,000, and that can vary uh, based on uh, there's negotiation on how, that, how long they want the lease to be or how much they want to pay for per kilowatt for their electricity. The more you pay up front, the lower the cost is for your electricity and the lower the actual buyout time frame is. Um, and then so usually after about six or seven years, there's a small buyout of about six or $7,000, and then the house of worship owns it. So for about $22,000 off of a $80,000 system, they, they own it then free and clear after six or seven years. All right. And in the meantime, they have to pay their utility bill, but they're essentially paying their solar panel bill. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the for-profit company, they make uh, money off of some of the the electricity payments that the house of worship is doing. They also take depreciation for the cost of the panels as well as the SREX, the solar renewable energy credits. Um, and then so they definitely uh, – it's a wise investment for the installer because they definitely make their money. But then the house worship gets to live their values um, and know that they're uh, – Uh, decreasing pollution and carbon pollution, um, and then as well as saving a little bit on their electricity bill. I'm talking with Dan Huncha. He is Faith in Place Director for the North and West Suburbs. They're having an event on Wednesday in Wilmette. It's called Solar for Faith Communities. And this is a public event. You don't have to be the leader of your congregation to go. You can just go if you are interested in getting your congregation involved. And I imagine that's how a lot of congregations get involved as congregants bring it up. Correct. Um, There's a lot of events like this that actually kind of organically spring up because House of the Worship that are interested in it uh, or that have done it want to share with others, hey, this is how we did it. It's a really cool thing to do. You can do it too. Um, So they share information. Our um, executive director, Reverend Brian Sauter, is going to be there as the keynote speaker. He's going to do a little bit of, um, I say, inspiration about why it's important, but then mostly like the actual nitty-gritty, like how do you actually do it? How can you finance it? 
Um, so it's really hands-on. It's not just you should do this, but how do you actually get it done? And is there um, an example of a church uh, that you would want to give that's, that's really done a bang-up job on this, that is not our own? That's not countryside. It's not our own. <laughs> that's not our own. <laughs> um, I mean, these people in the, around Wilmette, so it's, it's, somebody must have done it. Um, I know in Hinsdale, uh, there's a UU church there that's done the power purchase agreement. And we do have partners uh, in the Wilmette and the northern suburb areas that have done it as well. I don't know their names off the top of my head, but what's really cool is on our website is we have a partner section where you can actually put in, I want to know basically everybody that's done solar. Um, And then on that, you can get a map of... Uh, everybody in Illinois that has done solar. I've seen people in Carbondale and all the way down there and yep. I looked at the map myself. Oh, very good. Yeah, there's um, people across all of Illinois that have done it. Yeah, there's two all the way south in Carbondale that have done it as well. So um, keep up the great work at Faith in Place and we'll get uh, all the congregations and then all the congregants to get solar energy out there. Yep, it's definitely something that's doable, and we encourage people, um, if you have the the will and the inspiration to do it, we can definitely help you get that done. So you can check out the faithinplace.org website, or uh, for this particular event in Wednesday in Wilmette, you could go to Go Green Wilmette as well, and they have information there. Chicago Area Peace Action is involved as well, and it's been great talking with you, Dan Huncha, Faith in Place Director in the north and west suburbs, and uh, congratulations on all the good work of Faith in Place. Thanks a lot for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the surprise result in the elections in Congo. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. After 18 years in power, Congo's president, Joseph Kabila, agreed to step down and hold new elections last month. The elections were two years overdue. Then the election results were delayed, in spite of the fact that the Catholic Church, with 40,000 observers in the field, said there was a clear winner. Now comes the results, and it's not who the church's election observers say it is. With me is Kembale Musavuli. He is the national spokesperson for Friends of the Congo. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Kembale. I didn't see this coming. I did not think that um, the opposition candidate who got into the race late would end up being the winner. Um, what happened here? Uh, indeed. I mean, uh, you're not the only one who didn't see it coming. Many Congolese also are very surprised with the results. Uh, but the biggest story still remains that we must acknowledge that the peaceful transfer of power uh, and the limited loss of life um, due to this announcement is something to be commended. You know, this is the first time since the overthrow of Patrice Mumba in 1960 that uh, we have a peaceful transfer of power. But with this announcement, I do believe that the opposition candidate Martin Fayulu 
uh, will use uh, legal means to uh, try to challenge the election result uh, because every poll in the country showed that he was the clear winner. Uh, the church, the Catholic Church through Senko, um, has hinted that the, the result published is not the result that they expected as well. Yeah, Martin Feulu uh, said the election results were a true electoral coup. Why did the election observers declare this other opposition candidate the winner uh, <laughs> if there was a clear winner with a different guy? Uh, it's, it's quite interesting what is unfolding. You know, with Senko, they had 40,000 observers. They have a sense of what people voted. So having the Electoral Commission uh, make an announcement that Felix Chistekedi won uh, is, uh, I think, it's a smart move from Kabila. And it causes the confusion throughout the international community. Uh, people can say, well, there was an election. And it wasn't perfect, but at least there is a result why the opposition leader is, uh, has been uh, announced the winner. Uh, throughout this entire week in Kinshasa, uh, there were rumors that the party of Felix uh, Chistekedi UDPS had uh, closed meetings uh, with the, the Kabila regime. So the, the result announcement is more so seen as a uh, nomination, not actually as the win, unfortunately. And uh, for those who have been following closely, they will know that UDPS, since already, before the result, they were already celebrating. Uh, that they won the election. And not only that, uh, the Felix Shistekedi has made a comment, uh, some questionable comment around what will be happening in the Congo with Kabila in the country. The things such as that Kabila, uh, who has now left the office, may be appointed as an ambassador, that he has forgiven him for what he has done. He's thankful that you know, he is the president who finally has uh, stepped down peacefully. But that's not a take for the president to actually make. I mean, if there are contention around justice, let the justice system deal with them. He has nothing to do with that. And that's what has caused this fear that uh, there must have been some back room deals uh, with uh, Felix. But beyond that, right, the struggle is not over. I think having the announcement that can be fought into court, um, we can figure out the legality of that letter. But the thing that I'm more so fearing is the legislative and parliamentary results, because that will determine also who will be prime minister. As those results are published and people are not paying attention due to the announcement of the presidential election, that's a place where they can also rig much more uh, to continue to maintain power. The true test of this election will be, can Felix Chistekedi control the country if he is confirmed and there is no contention? Remember that the current system in the Congo uh, is run by the Kabila regime. They control the military, they control the constitutional court, they control the parliament. With him coming into power, already making a statement today, not himself, but uh, his spokesperson making a statement today, that they are willing to work uh, with the Kabila regime. I see that very hard for them to be able to run the country within a corrupt system that the Kabila regime has uh, put in place for the past 17 years. 
Can you tell us a little about Felix Chisicati, the man who has been named the winner in Congo's election? Because he himself is not a gigantic figure in Congo. His father was the opposition leader all all those years through Mobutu Sese Seko. His father, Etienne Chisicati, was a big-time opposition leader, died a couple years ago. And, and Felix is who? Exactly. Yeah. The fact that I know Jerome, uh, you all do your research very well. The fact that there are so little information around Felix is already a sign that he's not well known also inside of the country. Remember, he's the son of Etienne Chisekedi. Uh, so he's actually running with the name of his father without having a political career, without having been actually in the political scene. Uh, his father died two years ago. And uh, even his father himself, Etienne Chisekedi, was uh, very pessimistic about his own son. Uh, as you may notice, even researching, there is nothing about him. He never brought his son around in the political scene to work with him in any shape and form. Only when his, uh, his father, not Etienne Chisekedi, died, that Felix was brought into the space. It was more a political move from the party uh, to use Chisekedi's name to continue to galvanize the party. Um, and we've seen some of the inadequacies of uh, Felix Chisekedi. A couple of months ago, uh, opposition leaders went to Geneva to sign an agreement where the opposition will have one candidate uh, that they will put forward to challenge the Kabila regime. Uh, within 24 hours of signing that agreement, where it, Felix Chisekedi himself signed the agreement that he is agreeing to the one candidate, he recanted his signature, uh, saying that he didn't communicate with his base. But somehow he was able to travel all the way to Geneva, signing a document without conducting his base. Um, that already was a scary moment as a you know, young Congolese who want to see change in the country, to see someone who will now respect his word. And one can only guess what will happen as a president. Um, but I think the key in this story is the Congolese people forced the election to take place. And I'm sure they're not going to, no matter who becomes the president after everything settled, uh, they will not want to go back to the conflict, misery, unemployment, security issues that they've had under the Kabila regime. So it's a hard job for whoever decides to become president in the Congo today. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's going on with Congo and the outcome of the elections. Kambale Musavuli is national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. Thanks for joining us and talking about the election results in Congo. Thank you, Jerome. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. The government shutdown over the wall has focused minds on immigration. Nate Hensler is the executive chef and partner at Portsmouth Restaurant. It's at the corner of State and Erie. And he's thought about the contribution that uh, immigrants are making in his industry and has a creative way to help the children of immigrants at Benito Juarez Academy in Pilsen. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nate. Thanks for having me. Um, Tell us about what you're doing. What's on your mind here? So... um over the course of my 28 years working in restaurants, um, I'm from New Hampshire. I moved to Phoenix after culinary school. I lived in San Diego, San Francisco, Las Vegas, and now Chicago. And I'm sure it's not this way in every restaurant, but in my experience, I found that um, immigrants have made the backbone of every kitchen I've ever worked in, whether it's cooks, 
support staff, you know, managers, chefs, dishwashers. Um, by and large, that's that's who I've worked with, and so that's sort of where this is coming from. Um, with what you're hearing now from our president and our federal government, um, we wanted to at, at Portsmouth. We had we wanted to do something. We didn't know what it was, um, and with the old adage, you know, think globally, act locally. Um, we wanted to. What we do is we cook, so we wanted to put together a dinner event, and we weren't really sure what we we're going to do, but we we knew that we wanted to sort of. Um, do a Latin menu, and my sous chef Ivan Valdez is Mexican. He's first generation. Uh, he and I put together this menu, and the, the the idea sort of came from there. And you're calling it the La Bestia menu uh, and dinner. What, tell us about La Bestia. And so the La, inspiration. Bestia, La Bestia is the train, and there's several of them. That, but that's the train that goes from Guatemala up into um, the border of uh, the United States. Um, sometimes ending in Laredo, Texas, Nogales. Um, I originally saw a documentary called La Bestia, which is sort of how I heard about it. Um, but we, so what we did was we, we picked cities along different train routes and we looked at flavors and um, regional dishes from those areas. And then we sort of made the menu based on that, heading, starting in um, Tapachula and ending up in Nogales. So you have a pan-Mexican cuisine uh, menu is what you end up with. Yeah, and we're a seafood restaurant, so we each course except for the dessert is it has a seafood component to it. So you're starting off with a striped bass crudo. Yep, striped bass crudo, which is a raw striped bass. It's a little tostada, which is a, like a crispy tortilla. Uh, it has sweet corn, hearts of palm, avocado, and then this really nice um, cacao vinaigrette. It's like chocolate. It's bitter. It has all, um, avocado oil, and it. it's really really good. So, and then you go right up uh, Mexico with one, two, three, four, five dishes? Yep. So five dishes, um, ending with a dessert from our pastry chef, which is a, uh, with, which is a churros and a Mexican Coke float. And then that's a, kind of a Nogales type of treat. You know, it's, we wanted to sort of have fun at that point. Like, you're almost in America, you know, um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how authentic that is, but, you know, all, every, every, um, all my friends, Ivan actually loves actually eating this. That's why we did it. So, <laughs> um, well, it sounds like a great thing. And how are you doing on tickets? How do people get tickets? Where, where, what, are, what are, have people been buying them? So you can book. It's you don't buy tickets, but you book your reservation on Yelp. Um, it's for January seventeenth. Dinner's at six o'clock. Um, the thing that's um, special and different about this dinner and event is that um, we've partnered up with um, a high school, which is Benito Juarez Community Academy. And um, we're donating all proceeds to, they have a scholarship for um, Dreamer students. So in addition to the, the meal, Benito Juarez Academy has a mariachi band. There's like 15 or 17 kids going to come and play a couple times during the meal. They have Mexican folkloric dancers who are going to perform. Um, they even called because they wanted to know where in Mexico Ivan's family was from because they wanted to do a dance that was from that area. It was, it was really, really nice. So they're going to perform, and they also have a culinary program at this high school. So we're going to have five kids back in the kitchen um, helping, cooking with us, plating. So we're sort of integrating ourselves as much as we can with this high school. And um, we're going to have uh, a, this girl, Beatrice, who's um, going to graduate in the fall of 2019. She is a dreamer, and um, she would be someone who um, could be a recipient of this, of this donation. She's been accepted to a couple colleges uh, she's not sure where she's going to go because of her status um, and with the 
the challenges of paying for college, even if you don't have these these um, documentation issues, it's hard enough. So that that's the whole point of with the donation. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. I think everyone's been touched by the dreamers and their situation. And when you hear about a you know a hurdle like that going to college, it's a it's a huge one for young people. It is. I mean, I have a, a daughter who's in college, and it's it's hard enough for me to and for us to, to and for her to do it but um i just can't imagine so that's that's why and we and when i spoke with the principal of the college um i'm sorry the principal of the uh, the high school his name is uh john carlos Acone, he sort of talked about this this scholarship that they do and it's he has a really touching story and sort of drew me in and he, he's a great guy so we, i'm really hoping that we sell out we've got uh 30 more tickets to sell and that's that's why we're here so it's January 17th, yes. and it's at 6 o'clock. It starts at 6 o'clock. It's a $100 per person ticket. Uh, beverages are not included. You're going to try to try to whittle a little more for the scholarship fund through that, beverage purchases? Beverages are not included. Um, we're working with, um, I think it's Don Julio, who's going to hopefully donate some stuff or buy drinks for people, and then we'll, we're going to figure it out, but beverages are not included. And uh, people can get more information at Yelp. You use uh, reserve a table on Yelp there? Yes, sir. Uh, you can also go to our website. It's portsmouthchicago.com, and uh, you can reserve a table there as well. And one of the things I, I was reading, and I always wonder, you know, how many immigrants are working in Chicago area restaurants. And I noticed uh, the Illinois Business Immigration Coalition of Illinois says that there's 27,000 restaurants in Illinois, 561,000 employees, and nearly half are immigrants. Nearly half. Seems conservative. Honestly, I think if, if you could, if you waved a magic wand and there were no more immigrants, you, it would, you'd be cooking at home. And, um, you must, is, do you have any stories about people that you've worked with over the years? So I've, I think probably the most, um, the most touched I was was when I was living in Phoenix. I just moved there. Um, I didn't have any friends. And um, after I was working at a restaurant called Christopher's, um, it's a fine dining place. I was sort of befriended by the group of cooks that were there. There was four brothers. They had all come to America together. Um, one of them, I think, had, was getting married. This was 22 years ago, but one of them had got was either getting married or it was a, it was a, it was it was a quinceanera or something. But they invited me. I was the only, you know, non-Mexican person there. Don't speak a lick of Spanish at the time, and just had a great time, you know, just drinking and dancing, and and they just really took me in, and so it sort of made me think, like, you know, you hear as someone who came from New Hampshire. And not having that that culture at all, where I grew up, um, it, that's why I fell in love with cooking and why I stayed in the business for so long. It's it's the people, and the generosity, and and the the family, and and it's just it's a beautiful thing. Um, and and now we see this replicated all over, and the the kind of welcoming attitude um, that you were feeling. It's something you can feel all over the city right now. Totally, yeah. Um, do you have any advice for people uh, about? Uh, who are getting into the industry? Any ideas about um, how they can negotiate the whole scene? Well, if you are looking to get into cooking and you want to be a chef, I would say definitely learn Spanish. Um, how did you do? <laughs> you mentioned that well, you didn't, and now and then I, you indicated I, it's you. It's funny because I took seven bit. years of Spanish in school, and then but found I couldn't speak a lick. And people were, you know, teaching me all the the bad words first, and. Uh, 
just from 25 years working in the business, you just you pick it up. I, mean, I speak it really poorly. I understand more than I speak. But I would say first, you know, learn Spanish. Um, go work in restaurants. If you, if you are thinking of, for example, going to culinary school, go work in restaurants. See if you like it. And then, because um, if you don't, if you don't love it, you'll you'll absolutely hate it because it's you know it's it can either be the best job you ever had or it can be the worst day of your life. But for me, it's been the best. Now it sounds like uh, your uh, coworker Ivan has been instrumental here in putting together the menu and and, and doing all that and doing this. Um, what, what tell us more about him? So Ivan Valdez, he is a Marine. Um, he's a Kendall College graduate. He came to us from uh, my chef de cuisine Cristo they work together at another restaurant he's been with us for about five or six months he is um, obviously of Mexican descent he's worked at a couple great um, restaurants and when we when he and I talked about this he got very passionate and so we've cooked this this entire menu together a couple times and I, I I agree with him I think this is some of the best food I've ever cooked I wish that Portsmouth could do this food all the time but I think if, if for anybody who's listening, if you come in and eat, you're going to be very happy with not only the food, but the plating, um, the flavors are, are subtle and they're complex. You know, there's the dish. Um, I think the, the dish that he's most excited about is um, is that we're doing a whole roasted redfish. So Ivan had this idea where, you know, people who, with speaking about La Bestia, people who ride on the train, people um, who, volunteers who are trying to feed these these people will throw them food up onto the train that are wrapped in banana leaves. So we're going to do um, the fish that's wrapped in banana leaf, cooked on charcoal. So as it comes out, you're going to smell the smoke. It's going to be served family style. It's a very simple dish. Um, every person will get their own fish. And then there's a little bowl of rice, different condiments. So if you're sitting, if it's you and your friend coming in and a two-top, you're sitting with two other people, you're going to share the rice. You're going to get homemade tortillas, make yourself little tacos. And it's going to sort of engage you to, to have conversation and, and make some friends with people you might not know. Nate Hensler is the executive chef and partner at Portsmouth Restaurant. On January 17th, he'll have his La Bestia dinner, and you can get uh, more. In- you can make a reservation on Yelp, uh, for, uh, and you can also go to the website for Portsmouth and find out more information. And congratulations on what you're doing, and all the benefits and proceeds uh, will go to a scholarship fund for uh, young people coming out of Benito Juarez Academy. Thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations on your effort. Thank you so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will uh, chat a bit with Milo Stalik, our film contributor, about movies that are moving to Netflix. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.